You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Doug Kenrick, who is a professor of psychology at Arizona State University, and also the author of a couple of uh, wonderful books. This one, Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life, right, which is uh, a combination of, let's call it People Magazine and Aristotle. Well, and also <laughs> this one here called The, the Rational Animal, uh, co-authored with uh, Vladis Griskovicius, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Douglas, it's great to have you um, with me today. Great to be here. So uh, you got your start in uh, social psychology many years ago, and in the first book, Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life, you talk a bit about you know the early days when you were learning social psychology, and then at some point you had this kind of revelation. And when you're describing social psychology back in the day, you talked about it as a series of kind of micro theories, right? So I mean, we still see this today, right? So there'll be um, cognitive dissonance theory or terror management theory or, um, you know, these analyzing these, these, it's true also in cognitive science as well. You see these little micro theories, yeah, mini theories. And they're also, you say that it was really emphasizing the instability of humans and there was no real unifying theory. And then at some point you encountered the work of uh, Jane Lancaster and E.O. Wilson, and this had a profound impact on you. Could you maybe go back and talk about that and sort of how has social psychology evolved over the years because of the impact of biology? So, right, back in those days, in fact, we were proud about one of my advisors, uh, Darwin Lender. When I went to talk to him, he said, oh, we have many theories in social psych, and he was proud of that. They were proud of not trying to be overly grand in their scope. And I think that had to do with being scientifically rigorous and just picking a small part of the universe and analyzing that and not making inferences. What with the behaviorist emphasis at the time, don't make inferences about things that you can't see. And we certainly can't see evolution and we can't see people's underlying motives. And so the radical example of that, which I was originally trained, I was starting off to be a clinical psychologist, learning how to do behavior modification, which was the big rage when I was a, a student. And there the idea was don't make any assumptions about anything invisible. And that's probably nice at one level, but it causes you to miss a whole bunch of things. You know, if I step on your toe, it really makes a difference what was going on in my mind if I did it because I was annoyed at you or I, I'm a bully. That's much different than if I accidentally was walking along and I was carrying a train and I couldn't see your feet. And so what's going on inside my head, of course, does make a difference. And so the kind of cognitive revolution overthrew behaviorism and said, let's at least think about some things that we can't see, because it does really make a difference what your motive is and what's the reason why you're doing the behaviors that you're doing. But Evolutionary theory was, it was not really accepted. There was a, mostly an unawareness, I would say, of evolutionary theory. I would venture to say that most of the people that I knew who had PhDs in psychology never took a course in biology in college, might have taken one in high school, and probably 
that course dealt mostly with microscopic things like distinguishing between euglena and other organisms rather than talking about adaptationism. As a kid, I had actually gotten into it because for an odd reason, I used to collect tropical fish. And you know, I lived in this neighborhood with a bunch of tough kids and I would hang out with my friends and I was never tough. And I finally one day realized I'm not getting anywhere hanging out with these tough guys. And the Italian girls weren't attracted to scrawny intellectual kids. So I started spending my lunchtime after I'd gotten thrown out of a couple of Catholic schools for trying to be a cool guy. I started hanging out in the library of the public school at lunch and reading magazines about tropical fish hobbyists and aquarium. And what was interesting is that when the people who collected these fish would talk about the, this particular species, I don't know what, some exotic cichlid or neon tetras or whatever they were talking about, they would often talk about them in adaptationist terms because these people were trained in biology. And ethology was a big thing going on in those days. Tinbergen and Lorenz and von Frisch had won a Nobel Prize. And so animal behaviorists were beginning to think about the functions of behavior. And so I got introduced that way. And, and one of the other things I read during that same period of not being a cool kid and, and hanging out in the, uh, the public school library at lunch was I read a book by Raymond Dart that was about something, maybe Australopithecus, or it was basically something about a pre-human, one of the, it was called something like the missing link. And so there was a lot of excitement about that kind of stuff with regard to anthropology and in biology, but in psychology, it, it had really hit. And then when I was in graduate school and I switched out of clinical psychology and moved over to social psych and one of my advisors, well, there were two things that happened. One is that they gave us a comps. So we had to learn everything there was to know about. You mentioned cognitive dissonance theory. We had to know about cognitive dissonance theory versus Heider's balance theory. Terror management theory wasn't there yet. Okay. But those kinds of theories. We had to learn these findings. And I'm a procrastinator and I have this thing that I do, which is when I'm really busy, I go to the bookstore and I buy a book that has nothing to help me in any possible way. And so while I was studying for my comps in social psychology, I went to the bookstore and I saw there was this book there by Jane Lancaster called Primate Behavior and the Emergence of Human Culture, I think was the title of it. And I bought it right away. It had nothing to do, I thought, with social psych. But then I realized as I was paging through, this is really about all the same topics, these primates that Jane Lancaster is talking about. She's talking about altruism and cooperation and aggression. And these are all topics in social psychology. And she's explaining all of these things in evolutionary terms and suggesting there are implications for human beings, which in those days was, and even still might, not all anthropologists accept that. Okay, so she might have been going out on a limb with that. But I thought, whoa, we should be doing this. And I, so I, I came into the office and I was talking to some of my other students. And as I mentioned in that book, they started to treat me like I had joined the Communist Party or become a, some kind of joined a cult. What are you talking about? And one of my teachers, a young guy, Ed Stalla, he pulls out this big book and says, I just got this and I've been reading it. It's Wilson's Sociobiology. And he thinks that was full of hypotheses about behavior. So he and I sat down and uh, started collecting some of the first data that I collected on dominance and heterosexual attraction. And we had a hard time getting it published. It took us like 10 years to get it published because what also simultaneously happened is that there was a reaction in the social sciences to Wilson's suggestion that biology would encompass the social sciences, which really I think what he just meant is that in some sense, 
humans are part of human behavior and what goes on in the human mind is part of the biological world. But psychologists and sociologists took that as a big threat. And so there was a big reaction. And you, I'm sure, know the famous stories about how Wilson had water dumped over his head at the AAAS meetings by someone who thought that they were being righteous. And then it's his colleague, Stephen Jay Gould, who was an interesting guy because he was very pro-evolution, but very anti-evolutionary psychology and sociobiology. And I think it was for political reasons. I think he was a communist, okay, as were a couple of other people. And it was coming out of this tradition of people who thought society is maximally flexible and we can shape society to make better people. And they didn't like the idea of human nature. They thought that was reactionary. And so for a long time, the reaction that I got when people started to become aware of evolutionary theory applied to human beings in my field, they were aware of it only as a kind of a threat from sort of right-wing reactionaries, which if you actually had gone to HBES in those days, you would have found anything but a right-wing reactionary. You would have found revolutionaries who were moving the science forward in a different way, but that wasn't the perception. And so there was that to fight for a long time. People thought, in fact, that when we sent that paper in on dominance and heterosexual attraction, which had very good data, one of the reviewers said, who I think was Sandra Bem, who was famous for studying sex roles and believing that the, you could raise a kid to be a male or a female. It just depended upon, it was like, there was that famous guy who, I forget his name now, but he was at Johns Hopkins. And he made this argument that, you know, if you took off a kid's a male's genitals, you could raise him as a girl and there'd be no problem because there was nothing to biology. And that was the sense of sex role researchers at the time, which turned out to not be true. But we got this review that I think was from Sandra Ben that said, as a feminist and a scholar, I feel duty bound to protect the unwary journal readership from this type of inherently sexist logic. And we thought we were liberals. In fact, one of my co-authors was a radical feminist, okay, on this paper. But we were informed that, oh, no, no, this even thinking this way is reactionary and we need to stamp it out. So it was, at the beginning, it was tough. Although over the years, one thing nice about science is that data talks and eventually smart people, people with PhDs are smart, generally speaking, um, and none of them are dumb, okay? They're not all necessarily brilliant, but there's a lot of smart people and social psych probably has been one of the more receptive areas over the years. Still, not everybody, some people say, I don't like evolutionary psych. And what they mean is I don't like the way David Buss does evolutionary psych, but I still believe that humans are evolved. And I think we should be studying the positive side of human nature, which David Buss would agree with. Okay. But people like to hang on to their stereotypes. We like to have an outgroup. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know where, if you asked a hundred social psychologists, where are they on evolutionary psych today? I don't know what you'd find, but you'd probably find that 80% of them actually have some awareness of evolved mechanisms and how they might influence behavior. Look, there's been this division between the social sciences and the natural sciences for a long time, and I mm -hmm. want to pursue that a little bit. But yeah, I think you go even further, which is to dip your toe in the humanities. You say at one point that this book, Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life, you're really trying to address this issue uh, of how to live a meaningful life. And at least mm -hmm. when I studied philosophy back in the day, a big part of philosophy was understanding humans, right? Understanding human nature without a theory of human nature, you couldn't really have a, a theory of ethics or a theory of meaning. And when it comes to understanding humans, there continues to be a bit of a divide between 
the natural sciences and and the social sciences. I remember I, we used to go to animal behavior society conferences, I guess 20 years ago, and I would run into people and they would say, what's your animal? And I said, well, I, I do humans. <laughs> and they said, well, what are you doing here, right? You're in the wrong conference. You need to get over somewhere else. And although I think at a conference, a psychology conference, someone like E.O. Wilson might not get water dumped on him, we still continue to see, I think, some kind of resistance to this idea that humans are have a biology. And maybe it's still this belief that folks who talk about biology they think people fall prey to the naturalistic fallacy. Do you see that these ideas are more well accepted or do you still see continued resistance, at least outside of biology and psychology? Yeah, I live in a silo, okay? I go to the Human Behavior and Evolution Society meetings. And when I go to the social psych conferences, I go to the pre-conference on evolution and behavior and I hang out with my friends and what I've noticed is some of my friends, so one of my favorite conference friends is David Funder, who's at, at Riverside. And he's a well-known personality psychologist. And he had a non-tenured position at Harvard when he started out. And he sat in on E.O. Wilson's class. And I went up to visit him when we were much younger. And I spent a year visiting at Temple University. And so I popped up there and was hanging out with Funder. And he said, yeah, he's sitting in on Wilson's class, but I just don't see that this stuff has, that you're going to develop any hypotheses about human behavior. Mm. And he's since pointed out to me that, well, that was really wrong. There's been thousands of papers that have been published. It's a very heuristically fruitful. It, it generates lots of hypotheses to think about humans in evolutionary terms. In fact, one of the things that we've done and lots of other psychologists have done is we go back and revisit things like cognitive dissonance or balance theory and ask the question of, what might be the underlying function? So in the other book that you mentioned, The Rational Animal, we talk about things like behavioral economics, which is behavioral e economics is kind of the fusion of statistics and social psychology with economics, okay? And in fact, Kahneman and Tversky, I believe, I, Kahneman was definitely a social psychologist. Tversky was maybe a quantitative psychologist, but that's really bringing a psychological perspective into economics. And what we've done is gone back and started to, and we and other, lots of other people have gone back and look at the phenomena where behavioral economists like to show a bias. And then what we've asked, well, is there any function to this bias? And so, for example, we did some research with Jessica Lee, who's at the University of Kansas. We asked people to make judgments. There's this famous thing that behavioral economists talk about called loss aversion, okay? which is, I'll just state it, even though I know you know, but loss aversion is the tendency for me to feel worse about losing $100 than I feel good about gaining $100. If you look at my change from baseline, I go up a little bit if I find $100, and I go way down if I lose uh, $100. And, and I have seen it actually said in books on, on economics lately that, well, losses are psychologically twice as impactful as gains. Okay. And that kind of depends upon wh what you're talking about, but that's like now an accepted belief by economists. And so what we did is we did a study of loss aversion, but what we first did is we put people in either a mating frame of mind. Okay. We had them look, watch a romantic film, I believe is what the manipulation, this was done a few years back, but I'm pretty sure we showed them a romantic film and then had them make judgments about various kinds of losses and gains. 
Or we showed them a scary film like Silence of the Lambs. I'm again, I'm not sure which manipulation we used in this study, but we put them in a fright of, got them in a scary, scared frame of mind and asked them to make loss aversion judgments. And what we found is that when people were frightened, loss aversion went up. The pain of a loss was much greater than the happiness of a gain, if you're, especially when you're frightened. And if you think about that, that makes adaptive sense. Our ancestors who were in a threatened state of mind, that's when you didn't want to go down below where you were, okay? You didn't feel adventurous if you were threatened. You just were careful. You were watching out for potential losses. But when people were in a romantic frame of mind, what we found is that the women became a little teeny bit, but not significantly, a little bit more loss averse, but the men became significantly more gain seeking. In other words, for them, the pain of a loss was less than the attraction mm. of a gain for men. And that again, makes adaptive functional sense because if you think about, so again, from in an evolutionary perspective, there's these ideas of sexual selection that basically animals often show traits that help them reproduce either because they could compete with their own sex or because the opposite sex found them attractive. So the second one, peacock feathers are a good example of something that makes the male look more attractive to the female. And then horns on a lot of hoofed animals are there to compete with other males. And so that's called sexual selection. And what you usually find in peacocks and in those horns, in those antlered mammals, it's usually the males that have those features because of the idea of differential pearl investment. And that basically is a, the very simple idea that if I'm going to spend my resources on something, the more I'm going to spend them, the more careful I'm going to be. So if I'm going to go, there was that fancy French restaurant that I'm forgetting the name of in Philadelphia. Really nice food. I'm forgetting. I went there once. I remember which one I went there too. But uh, if you're going to go to a restaurant like that, if you're going to go to a restaurant, it's going to cost you, you know, a hundred dollars per person per plate. You're going to read the reviews beforehand. Okay. okay? But if you're going to go to a, a new taco stand that sells street tacos for $3 each, okay, and you're going to spend $9 for your lunch, if somebody says it's okay, you'll go there. Or if it's nearby, you'll go there, okay? There's no real loss. And so the more we're going to invest, the more careful we're going to be about the investment, obviously. And when we have a lot to lose, if we're going to buy a house or something, we really are extremely careful. But if we're going to buy a candy bar, no. Okay. And so now we think about that when men and women or male mammals and female mammals in general are about to make a mating decision, it's a different game because it's the female, the peahen, she carries the egg inside of her body. If you're a mammal, not only does, is the egg carried around inside the body, it hatches. And so there is no egg, you know, but basically the embryo is carried inside the body. And then when it comes out, it nurses. So this is very expensive for a female mammal. It's like buying a house, okay? Or at the very least, a new expensive car. For a male though, it could be as cheap as going to the taco stand for lunch, okay? It could be hit and run, okay? And in fact, for most, for 97% of mammals, it is. The male contributes nothing except sperm. Under those circumstances, the female says, you better have some good genes. If all you're going to give me is genes, you better have some good genes. And so males get larger and more colorful. And in some species where both the male and female are contributing, as in human beings, both sexes are selective. Although there's still the case, a male still could get away with a one-night stand, even a human being. But usually in the human species and in many bird species, the male hangs around. 
even if people get divorced, they wait eight years to do so on average. And many people stay together for their whole lives and certainly for the lives of large portion of the lives of their children. So human males invest, so they're selective, but still there's the option of the one night stand. And so for males, a mating opportunity brings out the peacock. Okay. Check me out. Look at me. I'm better than these other peacocks around here. And for a female, it brings out the peahen. Show me your feathers. Okay. Show me your stuff. What do you have? And so back to loss aversion, it makes sense that when a male is confronted with decisions and he's thinking about mating, he should throw caution to the wind and not be loss averse. And, and there's a lot of findings that are kind of like that, that are emerging from various researchers that suggest that economic biases are different depending upon different functional circumstances, either because of your developmental history, the current mating pool, the ratio of males to females, all of those things seem to influence economic decisions. And about back to your question about where are we in social psychology? I think most social psychologists now at least look on those findings and think, yeah, there's some reasonable points being made there. Yeah. I mean, in my experience in organizational behavior, it's, there's still not a whole bunch of functional analysis being done. And so maybe, you know, you could talk about kind of these levels of, of analysis, because I think in the world of behavioral economics, we're still focusing on pointing out the deficiencies in, in decision-making saying people aren't behaving like econs. And so maybe what we'll do is we'll create some model of, of behavior that does a better job of predicting, but we don't really have any underlying theory to explain why we have all these Ptolemaic kind of curly cues that sure. kind of describe what people are, are doing. And you're an advocate of this idea of deep rationality, right? There's a constrained optimization happening. It's just that the, the preference function is not the preference function that people are walking around thinking about maybe in their daily lives. Could you mm -hmm. talk about how you can do research at kind of multiple levels of causation and the benefits of understanding these different levels of, of causation? That's a little bit of a, a tough question for me, because I'm not sure what you're actually asking there. You talk about proximate mechanisms and kind of right. you know, functional mechanisms. Yeah. So at one level, and this is a debate I used to have with one of my other colleagues, Mark Schaller, who's at UBC and has now become a strong advocate of an evolutionary approach, but he used to argue with me, look, it's just, it's really hard to see the kinds of processes that you're talking about. It's easy for me to see, or if I'm going to do a simple analysis and say that I'm going to look at the ratio of males and females before I make a decision, that's easy. I can count the numbers of males. I can count the numbers of females. But if I want to then make an inference that has something to do with evolved history, I can't just do it in one experiment. Okay. I can do an experiment and test specific hypotheses about what's going on in the environment now or in my head right now. And I can get people to reflect on their thought processes. But what I can't do in an experiment is really prove in one experiment that this was, this is an adaptive mechanism. And so what we need is what they used to call in personality psychology, a nomological network. You need a number of different, maybe that's a term from philosophy if I actually was well-educated, but it sounds like one. But basically the idea is that we need to draw upon evidence from a number of different sources. So if we look at the stuff on sexual selection and uh, differential parental investment, any one particular study, you can look at it and say, okay, well, females are more attracted to dominant males, but that could be just human culture, couldn't it? Okay, couldn't that just be what we're 
trained, you know, to do. And it could be, okay, because don't we see more dominant males in the movies? Don't we see people like the James Bond characters? And yes, we do. And so how do you sort these things out? So it takes more than one study. It takes basically a number of different, first of all, you need to show that there's some parallels between humans and animals, mm -hmm. that in both humans and animals, it's the males that are the ones competing for dominance much more than the females, okay? And so that's one bit of evidence in the case. And then you can show other kinds, at all kinds of levels. Sometimes, ideally, we could show genes that are connected. I don't know that anybody's ever gone that deep with most of these things. They certainly have shown connections between sexual hormones and a number of human behaviors. You know, like competitiveness is linked to testosterone levels in other animals and in humans as well. People are always debating a particular finding, but in general, the general findings about testosterone is that it is associated with increases in competitiveness, which makes sense in terms of what I just described, sexual selection, differential investment. And so we really need a number of different kinds of findings in order to come to a conclusion. And then we need to rule things out. So let me give you one example of one of my favorites from my own research is we've collected some data looking at the preference for uh, young females and older males. And in social psychology, one of the areas of research is attraction. People are uh, obviously, one of the big things that happens between human beings, and it's hard to not notice when you're on a college campus, is that people are attracted to one another, okay? And so there's been a, decades of research looking at what are the factors that, that influence who I choose for a mate? And there are a number of studies that thought we love archival data and we love naturalistic observations you know, to be thrown into the mix because it helps us see that our findings aren't just based in a laboratory. And so one of the cool things that when newspapers started having now, this is how most people actually meet their mates is they go online to one of these apps. It actually is the most common way to meet a mate, which I, I find shocking as an old man. I, I wish they had it when I was young, okay, because I could have crafted my words. I was much better crafting words than I was at competing with the cool looking Italian guys. Most people now do this, but back in the sixties and seventies, it was less common, but there were newspaper ads and somebody could take out an ad that said, I'm a Protestant non-smoker and I like to play, you know, racquetball and I read philosophy and I'm interested in, you know, someone. And very often in those ads, they would put their ages. And so I went and gave a talk to a something called the Phoenix Singles Group, which was actually a lot of women who were middle-aged to now they'd probably look young, okay, but they were older than I was, I was young. And then a few men, but most, way more women in this group. And one of the women said to me, what is the deal with guys our age who are all interested in these young chicks? That was the term that she used, okay? And since I was a young guy on a college campus, I kind of understood what they were saying, but I didn't know how it would affect older people. But so they said, yeah, look at these. They gave me a pile of these singles mm. newspapers. And so I took them home and I showed them to my friend, Rich Keefe, who was, had gone to graduate school with me. We both were started off in clinical psychology together and had been starting to get interested in evolution and behavior. And so we looked at these ads and sure enough, the men were advertising for younger women. And the women were advertising for younger men. And when I looked in the social psych literature, lots of people had observed this because look, here's, this is a perfect place to look at mating. What do people say they want in these ads? And so several researchers have said, it looks like 
the average man is looking for a woman who is about two years younger, and the average woman is looking for a guy who's about two years older. And they would often then say, this fits with the norms of American society, that a man must be taller, better educated, and older than his partner. And so Keith and I thought we didn't believe that because we thought we knew enough about evolution at that point to think it's probably linked to fertility issues. Okay. Have you seen Christian Rudder's book? Uh, I have, yes, actually. Yeah. I, I did a blog for Fact Today on that because he basically, he analyzed millions or a large number of, and found support for what I'm going to say right now. Okay. In fact, so, so in my blog, I talk about how it parallels in what we have in a behavioral brain science paper that old guys look at, they click on younger women. They often don't contact them. They click on women. A guy my age, 73 years old, would click on pictures of women who were 25. But if I were in the dating market, which I hope never to be again, if I were, I wouldn't make an offer to those women because I'd realize, hey, she's not going to be the 73-year-old guy. Okay, so I'd take a compromise between 25 and my age now. And what we found is actually, yes, as what we broke it down, instead of just looking at the average age of men and women, we looked at the decade of the man's age and the woman's age. And what we found is that women were consistent throughout their lifespan. They were always interested in guys a little older. And this was true even when they were 60 or 70, which is not a good thong to be fishing in because the guys are dying off at a higher ratio and the guys are interested in these young women. What we found is that young men have no particular interest in younger women. A guy 25 would often say, I'm interested in a woman in her 20s, okay? Or a woman 21 to 29. No preference really whatsoever. A guy 30, if he's 35, he's interested in women about 36 to 26, okay? A guy 45, he's interested in women about 40 to 29, okay? And a guy 55 is interested in women like 42 down to 29 if he could get it or 31. And what you assume is that people are anticipating reactions to their what they get. And so what we argued is that this is related to differential fertility across the lifespan. Humans are unique in one way, which is, is females go through menopause. That's not very common in the animal kingdom. And some people think it's because of the adaptive value of having a living grandmother. It's hard to sort that one out, but nevertheless, menopause does happen. And so after age 45, a woman is very unlikely to have a baby. It, and if she has a baby after 50, it makes the newspapers, okay? But guys, 70 and 80, if you can wake them up, they can father a child. And so when I first presented that data, I remember I went to the University of Michigan and I was at a uh, personality conference and a social psychologist in the back said, ah, that's just American society. Those guys are fantasizing. Those old guys who say they want younger women, they're fantasizing. So we collected marriage data. It's exactly what people married. Older men marry much younger women compared to themselves. Guys in their 20s marry women a little younger than them. And teenage guys marry women a year older than they are. Those are those cool Italian guys who are attractive enough to get a, a wife when they're, you know, 18 years old. And so what we did also is we started collecting data from other societies. This is exact idea of a nomological network, okay? If it's something about human nature, it shouldn't be just found in American society, which is what people were saying. So we found it in the Netherlands. That's the same 
history in many ways. Then we found it in India where lots of things were very, very, very different. People want to know your horoscope, okay? They want to know whether you're a Buddhist or a Jain. They want to know exactly what your caste is. But they also want to know your age. In fact, the ads were taken out by your family members. And the family members of older guys asked for younger wives, okay? So you get the same pattern. And then we found a little island called Poro in the Philippines, where my colleague, Rich Keith, who did this research with me, his wife was, her family was from Poro. And they found a church that had been keeping records for over a hundred years. And in that society, the older men married way, way younger women. Okay. So it looked like the further we got from American society, the stronger rather than weaker this phenomenon became. Basically, we were able to, I think, make the case that this is not, we even found a society, the Tiwi, which I was reading, one of my times I went to a bookstore in my kind of, you know, dawdling habit. And I picked up those old little thin anthropology books like the Yanomamo book. And there was one on the Tiwi of North Australia. And I started reading it and I thought, oh my goodness, the men in this society, all the 25 year old men are, if they're married at all, are married to a woman who's 50 years old. And I thought, crap, this is, this seems inconsistent. But then I read on and it turns out, why is that? Because the older Tiwi guys marry all the young women and they will kill a young guy if they catch him running around or they'll at least injure him. There's a little ceremony they have where they throw spears at the guy if he gets caught cuckolding an old man. So the old men have all the young women and a young man marries an older woman because if he does that, he gets connected to her family and then they'll give him a younger bride later as a, a reparation. So it looks like, in fact, the anthropologists who were not evolutionary anthropologists, they said that the whole name of the game here is getting younger wives. So there's an exception that proves a basic rule, proves two things. It proves males being competitive with one another. And it, it also is that another consistency across humans and other species and the special human thing of being attracted, older men being attracted to younger women and younger men are attracted to older men, which I didn't get into the why is that? Partially because as men get older, they get more social status, they get more resources. And if you look at men, like even in hunter-gatherer societies, men's ability to generate calories, okay, to catch fish if they're fishermen or to hunt, gets better as they age. I think there's a peak of that. It's a peak at which it's late in life. So if there are these deep continuities across different cultures and environments, but there are some kind of radical differences. And particularly when we look at kind of modern, technologically sophisticated mm -hmm. societies like ours, you talk about the contrast effect, right? And I presume that the contrast effect is more pronounced now because of the availability of so much pornography, because of the dating apps and so forth, so that people can browse hundreds or thousands of profiles. How is that impacting the mating market? How is that impacting people's mm satisfaction and contentment with their relationships? So I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's a good question, but this notion of as society changes, we think one of the reasons why older American men aren't so obsessed with really young women is because Americans are healthier. And so a woman who is 35 in the, in the United States looks as fertile as a woman who's 22 in ancestral society because she's aged better. Okay. She's gotten better nutrition and so forth. And so now in modern society with people marrying late and staying attractive for much longer, there should be lots of things happening. I do know that people are less likely to get married now. And 
Divorce rates, though, have stayed high, but they're not, they're a little lower than they were in the 1980s. But that's only because there's fewer people getting married. And so has all of this availability of, I actually think that, yes, I think it makes people being able to look on one of those apps and seeing all of these potentially beautiful possible mates who are just out of reach. Okay. It turns out that guys who want to hear guys have to click a thousand times to get a woman who is going to respond to them. And I'm making that number up, but it's a god-awful high number. And women, they just put their, my, the woman who cleans my house, she went on one of these dating apps. She had, she had to get off in a couple of days because she was overwhelmed with responses from guys. So you're still seeing in those apps, you're still seeing the regular old stuff play out. But it might be that, yes, they're changing our adaptation level. They're changing this our expectation of what we can get, that we, we start to want everything and we're unhappy with our options. Again, I don't know the research all that well on that. I do know, again, marriage, marriage is getting later and many more people are staying single. And it could be because they are seeing so many incredibly attractive mates that they think, I'm going to hold out for one of those. But again, I don't have any data to prove that's the case. I do think the general thing you bring up, this idea of mismatch is, is an interesting problem because in both of those books, I talk about our kind of rebuilt Maslow's hierarchy. I was going to ask you about that because I don't think people talk about the Kenrick hierarchy, but it, it should be talked about. I think it, I, I use the Maslow hierarchy quite a bit in my classes. Wow. I'm going to start using the Kenrick uh, hierarchy maybe a bit more. Could you talk a bit about that? Jump into that? So Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow was a kind of an early evolutionary psychologist because he believed in modularity. His advisor was Harry Harlow, who did the research with the mm -hmm. baby monkeys. And it was arguing against the behaviorist notion that love is based upon just classical conditioning to getting the milk from your mother. The baby monkeys ended up becoming attached to the cloth mothers, even though they were fed at the wire mothers. And so Harlow was arguing that the mind is not so simple as just one little couple of basic primary drives. And Maslow kind of took that one step further and said that, yeah, there's a whole bunch of systems. There is a system for basic survival and hunger and thirst and so forth. And that's how babies operate. Then you move a little bit older and there are these social reward systems. Okay. And I forget the order, but one is as kids get a little older, they start to become concerned with self-protection. And then they get a little bit older, they start to become concerned with affiliation. And then I don't know how much this I'm mixing my hierarchy and Maslow's, but at the bottom, they're pretty similar. And then people become concerned with what Maslow called the steam, which we call status. We want to be respected by others. But then Maslow said that we go beyond, so we dealt with all these social problems and we can move on to more philosophical kinds of things. We can move away from that and we can become less concerned with pleasing other people go off and practice our art by ourselves, you know, or play the guitar just to satisfy right. myself if I'm self-actualized. And that doesn't seem like an adaptive way to build an organism that they would grow to the point when they satisfied all their needs, they'd move off to not caring about other people. What we thought is that self-actualization, it's there. People do like to develop their skills, become great artists, musicians, scientists, but they're doing that because it results in social rewards lower in the hierarchy. Like it makes you friends. It gets you, wins you respect. It can win you mates. Okay. If you look at Diego Rivera, would he have gotten all those attractive women um, if he was not such a great painter? He wasn't getting it on his good looks, okay? But his talents were what made him attractive. But what we argue is that what Maslow kind of 
should have put at the top is that once you satisfy those, once I've gotten status and respect and friends, then I move on to wanting to find a mate. And then I move on to wanting to keep that mate because the way humans were designed. And then that's all in the service of caring for our offspring. And so that's the, our new hierarchy just has reproductive goals at the top. An important thing about that is that we're not saying that everybody should go out and be like Genghis Khan and try to get their genes into future generations. Back to your notion of the naturalistic fallacy, the idea that because something is natural, it's good. Evolutionary psychologists don't believe that's the case. We believe that if something's natural, we want to understand it sometimes so that we can override it. Okay. You just, you spoke to Paul Ehrlich and I don't think Paul Ehrlich, who's a trained biologist would say, Hey, that's natural. Go out and just keep the population bomb blowing up. Okay. If we understand what's driving our desire to pump out babies, then maybe we can slow it down. Okay. Maybe we can look at the bigger picture, but we do have to understand that we're here now because we had ancestors like Genghis Khan and doesn't mean we should emulate them. Okay. But if we want to live a fulfilling life, we should understand what are those things? What are those instinctive drives and then make a rational decision about how do we want to behave with regard mm -hmm. to them? So for example, I still love the taste of carbohydrates, but because I understand the biological link between eating them and body fat and that and diabetes, I can make a, a decision to not go with my instinct and hide the food, hide the chocolate. Don't bring Italian bread into the house. And we can do this with all of these motives. We can understand they're driving us and we can figure out ways to live a fulfilling life and a longer life by understanding those underlying mechanisms. You talked about business. Actually, my son, who wrote my most recent book, it's called Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain. And my son wants us to write a book on the business applications of that. Yeah. He thinks that we keep seeing business books and they keep talking about Maslow. Maslow. Yeah, yeah. New books, they still talk about Maslow. And Maslow was great, but it was that was a half a century ago. And You can't go to a, a HR talk without talking about Maslow. I see this as a huge development. The fact that you've got HR people actually talking about Maslow, whereas uh -huh. 20 years ago, they were talking about just whatever attrition rates and benefits and so forth. So Doug, uh, you talk about these kind of different selves that we have within us and they kind of line up with the different levels within the hierarchy. How does that help us to live better lives, to think about these selves that are inside of us vying for our attention and competing against each other to pursue their, their different ends and goals. How does like an awareness of this and understanding of it and appreciation of it help us to achieve happiness and achieve our goals? That's a good question. One is that of course, we're not designed to be happy, right? We're designed to do things that will promote the replication of our genes. And so as soon as we reach one goal, boom, our brain says, all right, What's next? There's, I just finished reading this book by Robert Wright on Buddhism, and he takes an evolutionary perspective, evolutionary psych perspective, and he draws a lot of attention to that. It's look, we're, we're designed to have our one motivational system pop in as soon as another one rests, as soon as we satisfy one goal. So I don't know that we can ever reach perfect harmony, but we, I think we can. It's good to understand how we're designed just because I think being aware of it sometimes, let's take the example, the, the case of overeating. It's useful to realize that, look, we are designed 
to want fatty, carbohydrate-rich foods. Our ancestors were mostly starving all of the time. And so in the modern world, it's useful to realize that there are kind of modern parasites. And that sounds like a terrible word, but I don't think general foods is a parasite and we want to stigmatize them too much. But look, they do research to discover what do we want the most, and then they give it to us. Okay. That can be a problem in the modern environment. So our ancestors had to go out and find the berries. And then if they caught a small animal, they had to prepare it and cook it. And all we need to do is I just went to a Thai food restaurant for lunch and they served us so much food that three large males couldn't finish it all. And, and there were like three giant bowls of rice. And so understanding that we're designed to want to eat as many calories as we can, one simple solution is we hide the food. We make it difficult. When you go to the supermarket, you don't bring, in my case, I don't bring home every kind of chocolate that's possibly available. I don't bring home three six packs of my favorite IPA, okay, that's in the fridge waiting. As soon as I have a weak moment, boom, I can go get an IPA or go get some chocolate. So we can, I think, by understanding that we're designed in a way that doesn't match the modern world, we can basically engage in what behaviorists used to call stimulus control. If I take the stimulus away, it's a lot easier. This, this is a great study that was done by a guy who is, I think, in organizational behavior. I think his name is Brian Wansink, but I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. There was a study done with popcorn that what they did is they sat people down in front of a bowl of popcorn. And sometimes it was a big bowl of popcorn. And sometimes it was a little bowl of popcorn. And sometimes it was fresh and sometimes it was stale. And it turns out that if you're sitting there and you got nothing else to do, the people would just eat the popcorn and they'd clean the, they'd even clean the big bowl out when it was stale. Okay. Just because there it is, we're designed, there's food in front of my face, I will eat it. And so it's useful to understand we can structure our environments, same sort of thing. So let's take self-protection. We're safer than we used to be. I buy Pinker's argument that we are much less likely to be killed than our ancestors were. Lots of people are arguing against that, but I think they're full of baloney. I've looked at this data. I just looked at all of this anthropological data. Hunter-gatherers were dangerous to one another, and it wasn't just some measurement thing that the anthropologists introduced. People used to be much more aggressive, and now we have law. Law is good. The state is good, okay, and because it keeps us from killing one another, and it makes it so that I don't have to avenge. If you insult my brother, I don't have to go avenge it. We put it in the hands of the state, and that's good, and so we are much safer than we used to be. But do we feel safer? Probably not. Why? Because there's money in, there's sort of an opening for a parasite. Even the New York Times, it's not just Fox News that does this to us. Fox News scares people by saying the liberals are going to, you know, let all these foreigners into our country, okay? But the New York Times says the conservatives are going to take away grandma's social security check and they're going to leave little kids in cages at the border. And so the media, both on the left and the right and in the middle, they get money every time somebody clicks on one of the pages. They get money from the advertisers. And so what are they incentivized to do? to basically tell us there's something scary because we're naturally designed. Ooh, if there's a threat, we don't want to ignore it. And so 
what can you do? You can disconnect from all of those services that continue to feed you bad news. I'm a typical academic liberal, and so I contribute money occasionally to liberal courses. And what do I get? I get all of these people scaring me all the time. Did you hear that Trump's going to run again in 2024? Are you happy with what happened when they attacked the Capitol? And then they give me a little short tube questionnaire to say, I'm unhappy with this or that or the other thing. And now please send us a minimum of $25. And so I, I realized, look, what we need to do is if somebody is exploiting us for money, they're exploiting our fears for money, which politicians on both sides of the fence do too. Don't let them come into your house. Don't let them come into your mind. And again, I don't think we need to stop reading the news completely, but we definitely should minimize the extent to which we let other people turn on and capitalize from our fears. And this happens all the time. There's these great scams. There's these people who call up. One of our most powerful motives is to take care of our kid. And so there's a scam that happens in which people will call up a grandparent and they'll say, well, hello, Brian. Look, I was in an accident, so my voice is a little messed up here, but I'm in Nicaragua. And they find out that the grandmother went to Nicaragua by going on Facebook, okay? And I got arrested. It was stupid. We heard some pot in the car, and now they want me to pay a $3,000 fine, and they're going to put me in jail. Would you mind going down to, to do a telegram and send $3,000? And a lot of these grandparents do it, right? And so there's a whole, wherever there's a powerful need, there's somebody looking to exploit it. And so one of the things we can learn is we can know what our own needs are. We can recognize when they're pulling us to make a quick decision. And we can ask, is this really what this mechanism is designed to do? And am I, am I really helping my kin? Am I really doing something that will make me more healthy? Am I really doing something that will make my relationship happier. Anyway, I could go on and on about it. But I think that the answer to your question is, yes, it's profoundly, there's nothing as powerful as knowledge if you're gonna design an intervention. You wanna design the right intervention, you wanna know how the system works. Well, you think some people have gone too far and you talk about how social psychology was really a bunch of micro theories. And now, isn't this just a big macro theory? I mean, you also talk about how the kind of reinforcement affect model was too ambitious and the kind of economic exchange theory is, you know, too ambitious. Isn't evolutionary theory kind of a theory of everything? Is it too overarching? How does thinking about the mind as a sort of a coloring book add context to the generality of the theory? Well, I think in some sense, there's the broad evolutionary framework, okay? There's the, the question of natural selection. And that's this kind of big picture that said, you know, Darwin used it to explain factoids in, or facts in geology and what was then known about biology. And now people have been applying that framework to human behavior quite a bit. Darwin started it, of course, with this book on expression of emotions, but do we go too far? It isn't like an evolutionary theorist says every single thing we do can be explained only at this high level of analysis. You also need to understand what the local, I still believe that reinforcement theory is extremely useful. When I talked to you before about stimulus control, that's straight out of behaviorism. There's different levels of explanation and everything, because we're a living organism that was designed by natural selection, every small theory has to be compatible with that larger viewpoint. But it doesn't have to be that particular circumstances totally change. People used to think, oh, evolutionary theorists are assuming we're real simplistic 
instinct-driven animals. And we are assuming that you're instinct that we're instinct-driven animals, but it isn't that simple at all. It's very finely tuned. And you have to understand, we have to do the exact same thing we would have done as behavioral scientists before. We have to understand the system. But why not begin with the assumption that instead of it's just random and stupid what people do, which is what the behavioral economists who've done some brilliant work, they have the model, not, you know, they replace the econ model with the moron model, okay? And we do things that are moronic. The deep rationality notion is that let's look a little deeper and see if there's some mechanism here that normally works well. Let's begin with the idea that we're reasonable animals, that we're rational at a deeper level. And it just causes us, I think, to look for broader and more encompassing explanations. And then also sometimes to generate some new hypotheses we wouldn't have thought of otherwise if we thought it was all just random. So you use this um, metaphor of the coloring book and the brain as, as coloring book. And I think this is part cognitive science, right? As much as it is social psychology. It's this idea that our brains, they're not a blank slate, but they're also not these kind of rigid set pieces that some people use to describe the brain. Sometimes the metaphor of the jukebox. I think that was some of your colleagues, Cosmides and Tubi, talk about the jukebox. So you've got a bunch of different records and you got to choose from the records in the jukebox. You use this metaphor of the, the coloring book. Could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So, I mean, you've given the basics of it. If the mind is a blank slate, then anything is possible. Then we actually don't begin with any potentialities whatsoever, and everything has to be built up from scratch. Okay. And that's the radical empiricist view that the behaviorists more or less took. I'm not sure they all believed it. They understood Watson and Skinner both knew something about the fact that there are some biological mechanisms under there, but they didn't want to worry about them. But the blank slate model is let's just assume we come with nothing and it all has to be built up from scratch. Okay. We know that's not true. And the one model of an evolutionary model is the model of the jukeboxes you just pointed out. Another one is the Swiss army knife that we have different tools that are there, but a Swiss army knife is hard and it's set and it's got, even if you have a really, one of those really big ones, I was going to say a really good one, but I'm not sure it's really good to have one of those ones that has 50 blades because it's awfully heavy to carry around. But all of those blades are pre-designed to do one particular thing, but there is some flexibility. We do learn. This is one of the things that evolutionary anthropologists like to point out is that there is such a thing as cultural evolution. And it's not just playing another record. Sometimes we change the tune to fit the current circumstances. And so what I like about the coloring book as a metaphor is that in a coloring book, the structure is there to some extent. The problem is there. You're, gonna, you're either drawing a giraffe or you're drawing a kangaroo or you're coloring in a giraffe or you're coloring in a butterfly or you're coloring in a painting by, if you get one of the fancy ones now, a painting by, you know, Gauguin and you get to color it in. But if you are coloring into a coloring book, there are certain kinds of crayons that are going to be naturally attractive to you and certain combinations are going to be naturally attractive, but you're not completely constrained. Okay. You can do it. You can play with it. You can change it around. And so again, there's some flexibility within the system, but nevertheless, there is a structure. That's what that metaphor. I think some of the contemporary issues that we're all facing right now involve racism and, and sexism, and we're all trying to eliminate 
the negative consequences of these things. But a lot of people who are working to reduce these problems, they're not as much interested in this architecture that you've spent your time working on. Do you think that failure to understand the underlying architecture is going to ultimately get in the way of achieving these goals? Do you think that there's inadequate attention to whether it's underlying gender differences or the human outgroup animosity and, and other sorts of things, understanding kind of what we're up against? Does, does it, is that going to get in the way of, of accomplishing these goals? I think it can get in the way of, but if we believe that if you want to design a system to solve a problem, you ought to actually know what causes the problem. You ought to know what's wrong with this car engine and not just declare, well, all car engines should be treated alike. Okay. And so, for example, if we take like gender has always been a big issue. I mean, I started studying gender differences in mating years ago and people were very resistant to that and thought, no, this is takes us down a road where we're going to be the naturalistic fallacy that we're going to be saying this is right that it's okay that men are all the CEOs and women are less likely to be because we're designed by nature. And the counter argument to that is that, look, well, if you want to fix it, you want to actually know what the system is doing. And it might be that, in fact, if you want to move women up in organizations, it's possible that women, there should be different incentives for women than for men. So, I mean, traditionally, one of the incentives to being a leader is something that we're not allowed to even talk about now or but it's just that it was becoming more attractive as a potential mate. These leaders throughout history, like Genghis Khan, they basically, they did a lot of mating, okay, when they got into a, a powerful position. That's something that's not as attractive to a female, okay, to be sexy because you have power. That's not as attractive. But females are just as attracted to resources that they can use for their offspring. And so if we understand what is it that our men and women different in the way they approach leadership, then we can restructure, we can change the system in the correct way. We can put the, rather than just saying we should do this, and then we're still hitting ourselves over the head because why hasn't engineering gotten more sex equal? And it must be because there are obstacles to women because people are discouraging women. And that's not necessarily going to solve the problem. If the problem isn't that women are being discouraged, but they're not being incentivized or encouraged, and they maybe need to be encouraged in a special way, then we want to know, what is it? What, how can we change the system? But let's first find out what are the real motives rather than what are our fantasy motives. And saying, I think it is destructive to say, gee, let's totally ignore individual differences. And it comes from a good place politically at some level, but if it doesn't accomplish the goal, then let's talk honestly about what's going on here. And so towards the end of, I think it's the Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life book, you talk about these new interdisciplinary projects, and you mentioned cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, and dynamic systems. Are you optimistic about the interdisciplinary research going forward? Do you see more and more cross-pollination of ideas across what used to be the traditional silos of academic research? That's a good question. I do think that well, at Arizona State, I'm in a very good ecosystem because ASU is very big on interdisciplinary things. And at ASU, they brought Randy Nessie here from the University of Michigan. He was in the medical school there to run 
a behavioral medicine institute here. They brought Kim Hill from the University of New Mexico, who does some of the best cross-cultural research out there. They brought Rob Boyd and Joan Silk from UCLA to start up a human origins institute along with the guy, I forget his name, but the guy who discovered Lucy is over there. And so ASU is just crawling with interdisciplinary initiatives. And there's another one. Oh, the guy from Holdobler, Bert Holdobler, who did the book on ants with E.O. Wilson. They attracted him here to set up a kind of a, an interdisciplinary right. institute. All of these groups have meetings in which they'll bring in people from anthropology or economics or psychology. And so I see a lot of it here, but that might be the classic stuff by Kahneman, the availability bias. For me, it's easy to see interdisciplinary work, but I may be in a very lucky ecosystem. It might not be happening everywhere, but I think it's, yeah. One of the things about science is that, like we were saying before, data talks. And there's two things that if you have a good theory, you'll generate results. The other thing is that there is a reward placed on creativity, novel ideas. And what was cool about Darwin's theory is that he actually learned something about geology. He learned something about animal breeding. He learned something about mollusks. And he probably learned some other things that Malthus's theory of overpopulation was brought in. And so he integrated a lot of different things from several different disciplines. And we like that. Academics generally like to see integration. So yeah, I think the future is good. Is it happening as fast as we'd like it to? I don't know. It's happening at the place I'm at. Let's put it that way. What's your impression? I think it's a push and pull. I think there's, it's a frequency dependent, really. The more specialists get rewarded, then the more opportunity that creates for generalists and vice versa. It's a push and pull. So you've got a new book that you're working on? Yes. Tell us a bit about it. But this book, we basically asked the question of, it's Dale Carnegie meets Charles Darwin and Abraham Maslow. So there are all these books out there in this, quote, psychology section of the bookstore. You see all of these self-help books. And I, was, I had a teenage son, and when he was about 10 years old, I thought, I used to do evolutionary psych as, as a purely intellectual. I was a clinical psych student, and I left to become a pure scientist. But over the years, I believe that some of the findings from integrating anthropology, biology, and psychology have led us to really understand some of the way, some really important decisions that we make. And so I believe we actually do have a lot of useful information out there now. And so I sat down with my older son, who manages something here called Psych for Life, which is a media outreach program, and who also did a bunch of videos for my social psychology text, where we'll go and interview people around the world and then put a little four-minute TED tape about their research. And so we got together and thought, okay, let's go through, let's ask about each of those steps in the pyramid. What was it like for our ancestors? What was it like to find food? And what were the survival problems? What used to kill? We actually go through and find what killed hunter-gatherers and what kills us today. Very different things, as it turns out, okay? And then with regard to self-protection, how dangerous were other humans? And why were they dangerous? And what's dangerous now? And then with regard to affiliation, what was it like to find friends? Well, we found our friends from our cousins and our family members. Now it's totally different. Now we can choose friends from a whole universe of different people, from different racial and ethnic groups. And, and so the modern world is different, but we still have, our brains are wired up with a bunch of systems 
that worked well in the past. And sometimes that opens us up to becoming parasitized, the modern world. And so that's, this book is about that, going through each of these problem sets and looking at like a case, like there was one case of a guy, Walter Hudson, who got to be 1,197 pounds and he couldn't even leave his bedroom. Elvis Presley, who was this really fit and handsome and athletic looking young guy, he got to be 350 pounds and both Walter and Elvis died in their forties of heart disease. And so we talk about these cases. We talk about the friendship between Kahneman and Tversky when we talk about the friendship and what's the lesson? Well, the lesson of Kahneman and Tversky is be useful. You know, when you're hanging out with your friends, don't try to distract them from their work help them do something. And that's what Kahneman Tversky did. And the obvious example of Walter Hudson and Elvis Presley is hide the food, <laughs> you know, um, make yourself have to work for it. So we talked about each of, you know, an interesting case example, then the anthropological data on what was it like for our ancestors and then what's it like now. And then finally we end with five or six different points that you can take home the modern day, how to win friends and influence people and Look, I look forward to that book. In the meantime, if you have a chance, everybody, check out Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life. Also, the co-authored book, The Rational Animal. And if you want something a little bit more, a little bit bigger and more ambitious, definitely check out the textbook, which is a fantastic textbook called Social Psych by Doug Kenrick. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.